Father, we thank you for tonight. We settle our hearts. God, we know that connection is why we are here. You gave us a desire for relationships and connection with people, with you. And so, Father, would you give Liz and I wisdom as we share? Would you give George and Linda wisdom? Father, would you give Paul and Phyllis insight even as we answer questions? And we bless you tonight on this Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2015. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys, um, I want to just say this. Let me read a statement to you. Connection is why we are here. It's what makes life worth living. Relationships are the fiber of life. Relationships hold life together. Broken relationships break up life. But wholehearted relationships bring wholehearted life. And wholehearted life heals you mentally, emotionally, and physically. All the studies show, whether it's psychological or even scientific or medical, they find when you, when you have an optimistic view of life and you have, an, as a general rule, positive relationships, you're healthier. There's a 20% less chance of even heart disease in your life with wholehearted, joyful relationships. It makes sense spiritually. It makes sense physically. It makes sense emotionally. And I believe that's why Jesus, when he was, when he was pushed by the Pharisees, what's the greatest command in Scripture? He says, love, first words out of his, by the way, first words. Out of Jesus' mouth in relation to the greatest command is a four-letter word, love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That could sum up everything in a sense of what I'm going to say and Liz and I are going to say tonight. And so there's a picture that we have in our home that we took down to, to pass around tonight. This picture captures, maybe more than anything else, what we're going to be saying both in the panel discussion as well as in the message. So I'm going to start with you, Steve, and you, just, you guys just quickly pass it around, that picture, that painting. Tai Toshiro explains that couples in their first year of marriage score 86% on marriage satisfaction. By the seventh year, it's under 50%. Yes, about 50% of couples are divorced each year. Another 10 to 15% separate but do not file paperwork. And seven more percent are chronically unhappy. That means that two-thirds of marriages are not very joyful. Well, Liz and I want to give 10 tips, which I think, if followed, are key to wholehearted living. And we... Went back and forth and cut and pasted this together because I think these are pretty good. And I think after 29 years of marriage, we at least agree with our tips. We, we may not live them very well sometimes. And so we're, listen, everybody, can, can everybody say journey? I'm on a journey. Say it, I'm on a journey. 
So we're all in different places in our journey. So none of us ever arrive until we get to heaven someday. So don't in any way hear us saying that we've arrived. Tip number one. Are you ready? It's spicy. It's sexy. It's wholehearted. Are you ready? Are you ready? Number one, commitment to gritty work. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> commitment to gritty work on the relationship. Joyful, fruitful, wholehearted relationships take work. Hard, gritty work. It's grimy, it's hard, it's difficult. And any of you that have lasted more than probably 10 years in your marriage, know how hard it is to keep a relationship together. It is, it's very, very difficult. It can be extremely difficult. You know that Liz and I lived for 10 years in Japan. And here's what's interesting about Japan is that um, even, now this would be in the 90s, and I'm sure it's changed slightly since then, but I don't think it's changed that much. They still have arranged marriages. And in the 90s, it was still 50%. 50% of marriages were arranged marriages. Listen to this quote from a recent article. The couples who had married for love and been together less than a year averaged a score of 70 points out of a possible 91 on the love scale. But these numbers steadily fell over time. The love couples who had been married for 10 years or longer had an average score of about 40 points. In contrast, couples in arranged marriages were less in love at the outset, averaging 58 points, but their feelings increased, listen to this, their, their feelings increased over time to an average score of 68 at 10 years. So the love couples, those who, who fell in love and got married, saw this, this kind of romantic love drop off over time. The arranged marriages started off down here, but over time increased and, and well surpassed, almost doubling those who had a love marriage. So I think we should go to arranged marriages here at the road. <laughs> That's the obvious conclusion. And I've already got a few that I could fig figure out right now if I can just get some parental permission. We'll make it happen. No. I think the secret was the view, and I like the way this article concluded. It said, elements of fairy tales such as Cinderella were present in 78% of people's beliefs about romantic love. There was some kind of a magical feeling that you had toward that person. Those people were more likely to have experienced disillusionment, devastation, and angst in their relationship than those who gave little credence to fairy tales. So it seems as though in arranged marriages, it was more of a business transaction, right? I mean, that's, that's what I know about Japan, is a lot of it had to do with dowry. That's what I remember, Liz, that there was a dowry interaction that occurred and, and there was something to do with the, the level of socioeconomics as well as social standing that related to the arranged marriage. And so it started off there at that point, but it grew. And it reminded me of my grandparents. 
my grandparents. My granddaddy in South Carolina was a rancher and a farmer. And I saw, some, I saw a couple pictures with his arm around grandmother. And I mean, it wouldn't exactly be considered the most romantic photos you've ever seen. I think she even had a hoe in one hand. It wasn't a pitchfork or anything, but it was a hoe. And, uh, and they were smiling. It's not like, you know, like that picture. But they, but grandma did the books for the ranch. Every day there was grandmother at the table cooking breakfast for 35 hands, grits and eggs and bacon, the best kind of breakfast you could ever have. Cracker Barrel has, has franchised it. Um, and, then, and then granddaddy's out at 5.30. They're out in the fields. They come in at 7.30 for breakfast, but she's doing the books. And she cut the checks. And they work together. And I mean, I can remember two or three times where I heard him like having an argument or something. But that was there, was, there was a love. There was an affection. They held hands at church and stuff. But there was no magic. I don't think there was, a, there was not this sense of a magic relationship. Can I, give a different, can I give a different term to the tip? Tip number one I said was um, gritty work, a commitment to gritty work. Let me give you another. I, just, I like this one better actually. The, okay, here's, here's another one. A commitment to making magic work. Hello, I like that. A commitment to making magic work. In other words, magic is not some pixie dust in the sky. You make magic work in all your relationships by hard work, by communication. Liz, you want to comment on that? I know it's just been beautiful being married to me almost every moment of our life. But if we've ever had any problems... <laughs> I'll sit down for a second. Get my bearings. Is that I think we can look at our spouses, especially us wives, like we do an umpire in a baseball game. We don't notice them until they make a bad call. So I think we have to think about the fact of what they do. And meditate on it almost, like meditate about the good things that your husband does. Um, and one, one day I thought, you know, Steve took a risk on me. He, he decided he was going to take care of me and he was going to uh, provide, you know, primarily provide for me. And some days that's a huge risk, you know. And uh, I just think that we have to realize the risk that our husbands took on us. And then, so recently I said, thank you for taking a risk on me. And I love this phrase, that God's risk was man. So it's all a risk, but it's, it's good. It's a good risk. And we, um, we have to uh, appreciate the, the risks our, our spouses have taken for us. And so I think my tip would be part of the gritty work is right here. Just thinking about the good things that Steve has given to me, um, the way he lives, the way he thinks. I want to be thankful for that because I have become a better person because I've married you and you took a risk. Thank you. <laughs> well, you took a risk on me. And, you know, we didn't know what we were doing at first, did we? Hardly at all. And um, it's been, I think, the, the whole Japan part. 
and, and all that was tough because when we got married, you guys, we, um, we were in language school. So we were full-time in language school. So we were doing the language school. We were also doing ministry with Campus Crusade and learning uh, about each other and about married life. And soon after that, we went off to Okinawa to start a ministry in Okinawa, Japan after the security of all our friends and relationships being in Tokyo. And so it was, it took some work. It was hard work. Okay, number two, number two, experience the love of Jesus. Experience the love of Jesus. Listen, you guys, the closer you draw to Christ, the closer you will draw into the relationships God has for you. And the more distant will be your relationships with those that God doesn't have for you. So when we come to know Christ, when we give our hearts to Christ, when we start to make Christ the center and the intimacy of our life, it's going to draw you closer to the relationships in your life that God has given to you. But listen up. It'll also create distance with those relationships that God has not given you. See, that's a really, that's a hard one for young people especially. You young people are going to struggle with this. Because there's some relationships that some of you guys are in. They're not from the Lord. You shouldn't be in those relationships. They're toxic. Some of you are in toxic relationships. And what's happening is you're drawing closer to the Lord. Your relationships have not been anointed by God right now for you to be in. They're trying to pull you away from the Lord. And the Lord is saying, draw close to me. Draw near to me. And as you draw near to me, you think that that distance is a bad thing. No, that's probably a good thing right now. That's not a bad thing. Because what God's doing is he's re-engineering your family. He's re-engineering your relationships. And so... And so that's one of the ways you know in a dating relationship for you that are in dating relationships and friendships with the opposite sex is that, you know, we used to use in Campus Crusade this triangle idea with uh, here's you and here's her or him and then here's Christ. And what it should be is that as we draw closer to Christ, we're drawing closer to each other. You hear me, young people? You hear me, you guys that are single out there? I mean, you... You, if, if that relationship's not drawing you closer to Christ, you might need to end it. Now, you say, well, what? I want to be a witness to those who don't know the Lord. Well, you can be. Just realize that that is a witness that you're having to the Lord. But you're not going to let them have so much direct influence on your life that it's pulling you away from the Lord. And some of you aren't strong enough. You're just not. I mean, when I came to know the Lord... I had had a lot of relationships with a lot of girls. And uh, as a freshman at Georgia, <laughs> she knows. You, you know the good ones. She, she, she knew the good ones, but I had some that weren't so good. And uh, this is my freshman year. And as I began to grow closer to the Lord, I saw this distance begin to happen with these girls. And that was fine with me, but it wasn't fine with them. It wasn't fine with them. And so there were some temptations, there were some struggles. So there is, to extricate ourselves out of that into what Christ has for us, sometimes you have to pay a price. And so I want to say, that number two, a tip for any of us, whatever place we're at, single, married, divorced, whatever, draw near to Christ. That's why that picture's going around. You'll see what I mean when you see the picture when it comes around. Draw near to Christ 
The Bible says that God is love. God is at his core love. Jesus in speaking to his disciples, write down John 17, 26. And meditate on that tonight when you get home. Meditate on that tonight. Jesus said, and I have declared to them, meaning his disciples, your name. And will declare it. That the love, listen to this, the love which you loved me may be in them and I in them. He's saying the love that I've experienced with you, Heavenly Father, I want them to experience that same love. Now, Jesus would not have made that his prayer if it wasn't possible, church. It is possible to experience the love of the Father the same way Jesus experienced the love of the Father. And that's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Emptying ourselves so that Christ can fill us with his Holy Spirit. I was going to say, um, that picture um, I kind of named as we were talking about this, uh, this uh, message. And I named it the Senior Valentine. Because, you know, you think about what he did. When we betrayed him, and when mankind betrayed him, it was so scandalous. The, the love of God is so scandalous that he gave his only son to get that relationship out. And so I need that power in my life for, for all my relationships with all of you. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I, I have the, my husband gave me Valentine's gift of going away. I went to on a retreat by myself. And the thing I got was that God said, you have to empty you have to dump off a lot of um, earthly stuff. And I had to confess some sin. I didn't know it was there until kind of a weird circumstance when I went to it because he said I could talk a little too long. So um, <laughs> don't go on. relationships with a lot of power from him, not ourselves. Listen to this. Jesus says this. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be made full. So that, that love of Christ poured in. Men, listen to me. 
you need to waste your life on some things. You need to waste your time. We are so driven as men with our jobs and our schedule. That's not bad. Not bad at all. Matter of fact, it's a good thing. But you need time wasted in front of Jesus. Where you get up early or you stay up late and you just are before the Lord with God's word or a worship uh, CD on or something and just worship the Lord. Experience his love. Let him fill you with his love. Slow down. This week was a horrible week for me in that regard. I was way too busy. And, it was, and, I was, and I was uptight all week because I wasn't taking time to be before the Lord. I took my prayer walk and that I do, but I needed time just to be before the Lord. Men and women, be before the Lord in worship before Him, taking time for that. Tip number three. Tip number three. This is really important. Love and value yourself. Tip number three. Love And value yourself. Write this down. You're going to love others the way you love yourself. You will always love others the same way you love yourself. Love yourself enough to see the value of who you are. Self-respect. Love flows from a heart set. That begins with knowing and loving yourself enough to value others as you value yourself. If you look around your life and you see constantly just a parade or a series of broken relationships. It says something about how you value yourself. And so Christ would say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus embedded within us this, this constitution of our heart by which we can only love with the capacity that we've experienced love, and we can only love with the capacity in which we respect and love ourselves. Now, Plato called it knowing thyself, some have called that loving thyself. I would call it loving God with all of your heart and your neighbors yourself. And so loving and valuing yourself is key because here's why. When you ask people about love, the first thing out of their mouth most of the time is some broken love relationship they've been in. It's interesting, if you ask people about love, you start talking about love for very long, they don't talk about how in love they've been or or the great friendships that they have, they tend to talk about broken relationships and broken love. Now, why is that? Why do we do that? The big unnamed thing that Brene Brown, I think, discovered in her decade-long research is shame. Shame is the fear of disconnection. We all think, is there something about me that if people see it, I won't be worthy of connection. I won't be worthy of love. No one wants to talk about it. And the less you talk about it, listen, the more you have it. So in Brene's Brown, she found that there were 
Brene Brown's research, she found two groups of people. Those who are overwhelmed with shame and can't seem to connect any long-term relationships. And those that have overcome shame and seem to have a view of themselves based on, listen, a strong sense of worthiness and a strong sense of love and belonging. And there was only one variable that, 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 there was only one variable that separated the two groups. And that is those that had healthy, joyful, fruitful relationships believed that they deserved it. Church, everybody, look at me. You deserve it. You're a child of God. You're created as a child of God to experience love. You deserve that. And so what happens in a lot of relationships where there's so much pain and hurt and shame is because really at the core we don't believe we deserve it. And so we live in our shame instead of looking into our shame and exposing it and beginning to get set free from it. Um, I like this verse. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 2. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Shame, this fear of disconnection, if we let that rule, which we all have it, um, if we let that keep keep. Um, strong in our lives, then we're going to do crazy stuff. If you remember, the first time shame came to human beings was after sin. And, the, and Adam and Eve hid from God. And then he said, where are you? And they were like, you know. And so shame makes us do nutty stuff. So we have to um, renounce shame. And we do that through being vulnerable. And we do that through just saying, this is how I'm feeling. And not trying to hide. Because it talks about shame makes us act crafty and hide. So we can be ourselves. And the opposite of living in shame is living in your belovedness. Because we are beloved of God. And we need to be also picking people in our lives that remind us of our belovedness and not of our shame. And then we need to be those spouses that remind our spouses of their belovedness and not shame them. There's, you can go kind of either way. And so that's the thing we have to be. We have to be ready to receive our belovedness, especially in marriage, but even in friendship. And then we have to give it away. And that makes a really great relationship. Such a tricky thing because... I know that some of you are in relationships where there's not vulnerability. You don't have the ability to be vulnerable because you've never been vulnerable before. And so I, I want to be careful with what I'm about to say. It's actually going to come up a little later again. But you're worthy of love. Let me just say that. You're worthy of love. Wherever you are on the vulnerability scale with your friendships and your relationships, I would encourage that you increasingly become more vulnerable in trusted relationships. And I'll explain more about that in just a moment. Tip number four. Number four, courage to be wholehearted. Number four, courage to be wholehearted. The hard part is that we are fearful 
of not being worthy of connection and then fear kills wholeheartedness and we have half-hearted relationships. Be wholehearted. It takes courage to be wholehearted. Courage, listen to this. Courage from the Latin, the root is cur. C-O-U-R, cur, and courage, which means, listen, to tell your story of who you are with your whole heart. Courage actually means in the Latin to tell your story of who you are with your whole heart. Very simply, courage is to be in relationship and to be imperfect and yet open to others. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, it's kind of important because we can be open in a relationship where we never share anything of our weakness. That's probably where most of us are. Especially men. The cha- but true wholeheartedness means openness in relationships where the other person in that relationship does know your weaknesses. And they still accept you and they still love you. I mean, that's ultimately the best friendship to have. And I would encourage a relationship where that begins to start happening. Look at, um, you don't have to turn there now, but when you get, you know, later, look at Matthew 5, 3 through 12. That's the, that's the great Beatitudes, the blesseds by Jesus. Tell me if that's not vulnerability. He's saying it's blessed to be poor in spirit. He's saying it's blessed to weep. Man, is that the opposite of the American way or not? But he's saying that is the way to the kingdom of God. So courage to be wholehearted. I want to encourage you to be courageous in wholeheartedness. Any thoughts on that? I forgot. I had something. What was that? Let's take All right, think about it. Number five. I want to make sure we get to the panel. I'm going to go fast through these. Embrace vulnerability. It's already been mentioned, but I think it's, a, it's actually a, a oh, key I know. point. I know. Yes. Sorry. Well, I just wanted to say that Steve um, had a season of his life where he had the choice of being vulnerable or hiding, and he kept being vulnerable. And so what's cool about being vulnerable is, is that it's contagious. And for me, I had something in my heart that I was too ashamed to share and because he did it first, then I got to share, and then he got to say, it's okay, and then we felt closer. So that's what happens when we start to be vulnerable. When, when someone steps out, it gives that other person that ability to do it too. Which is perfect because the next tip number five is embrace vulnerability. Um, joy comes in connection through authenticity and vulnerability. You must, listen, you must let go of who you thought you should be and start embracing who you truly are. That's a, that's a quote from Brene Brown. I like this quote. You must let go of who you thought you should be and start embracing who you truly are. And you say, well, who I truly am is, you know, I, I just like to get drunk, you know, about every three days. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about who you are in your personality, in your gifting, in your strengths and weaknesses. Because your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend can't be truly who they are if you're a big poser and pretender. 
And listen, guys, most people in the church are posers and pretenders. Most pastors are posers and pretenders. I hang out with them. And the ones I hang out with don't and aren't. But the majority are. I have to say, I'm sorry. They are. I mean, it's just, they've got this. And I think part of it's because you, you kind of start performing. You're performing because you've got this large group of people. They think you're perfect and you've got to keep the persona going. That's so unbiblical, and it's why so many of them are leaving the ministry. 87% of men and women who go into the ministry drop out after seminary after 10 years. So that's pretty high. I mean, it's 9 out of 10. We're not doing it right. Why not embrace vulnerability? Why not be open to our weaknesses and strengths? And you know what? The people will love it if it's done in a way that's God-honoring and God-glorifying because it sets us all free. Because every pastor who's got shame in his life, he's got a hundred people that have shame in their life. And if we would start giving permission to start owning our stuff, we start getting healed. It's really true. So here's what I think. Let me give you this. Embracing vulnerability does three things. This is absolutely true. It is time-tested here at the road. There's probably five Points, but I'm going to give you three that I think it really does. Number one, it breaks the power of darkness and demons over your own heart and it exposes them. When you're vulnerable about your sin, and we're going to talk about confession in a minute, but when you're, when you're vulnerable about your weaknesses, when you're vulnerable about your shame, even stuff that's happened in your childhood, I'm not talking about everybody, but I'm talking about entrusted relationships, you're shining the light on where demons live, where the darkness is. They cannot hang out there if you start naming it for what it is and exposing it. That's number one. Number two, it starts the process of then healing in all your other relationships. Because as you quit being a pretender and a poser and acting like you're perfect and that you're like this really cool spirit-filled Christian and you do everything right, and you start being vulnerable about some of these areas of your life, you'll start the road to healing. Isn't that exciting? And then number three, through vulnerability, it becomes an invitation for others to quit posing and pretending and invites authenticity into all of your relationships. You know, it's kind of like you're driving to an appointment and you're late. And you come in there and you go, oh, I'm in traffic. Or you say, you know what? I didn't plan ahead. I didn't set this thing up right. I'm so sorry. Just be authentic. Be real. Folks, some of you guys and gals, if you're struggling with some hidden secret sin, expose them with trusted people and begin a process of healing by exposing them. Any thoughts on that, hon? That was it. I just okay, number six, practice gratitude. Number six, <coughs> practice gratitude. Start just being thankful to people for all that they do in your life. How they contribute to your life. How they show love through the little things they do in your life. Tell people thank you when they do something nice or kind. There's something in your heart that happens through practicing the words thank you. Just say thank you. Just say, I appreciated that. 
e- even if the, listen, I'm going to got to hear this before you go. Even if you believe the world owes you something, start thanking people anyway and watch God work in your heart a deeper love for others. Yeah. I was going to say, one of, some of the most powerful miracles in my life are when I start thanking God for the negative things in my life. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in all things, give thanks to God in Christ Jesus, and this is God's will for you. And it's God's will for us to be thankful. We don't have to like it. We don't have to pretend we like it. We have to say, thank you, Lord, that um, I don't feel loved today. Thank you that this person didn't um, honor me. Thank you that uh, certain negative things happen because God's peace comes. It's weird. It's so weird. And, and especially us women, we, we are very, um, we're kind of like fear magnets. Fear comes really easily to us. And if we start thanking God for the things that we don't like, it's amazing what happens. Like we invite the power of the Holy Spirit in and he starts working and he drives away fear through our thankfulness. Number seven, confess your sins. Ooh, that's really fun. Um, this is so hard to do in relationships, and yet it is so key. Even uh, guys with guys, women with women, your relationships, be, be willing to confess your sin. Some of you guys have um, got some stuff you need to, you need to ask for um, forgiveness from your, uh, from your family because of things you've done. If you don't do that, I'm telling you, you're building up strongholds of the enemy. So confess your sins. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Basically what he says in James and other parts of Scripture is that actually by not confessing our sins, our prayers are hindered. So God can't answer our prayers if we continue to walk under the bondage of unconfessed sin. But when we confess our sins... We get set free. Number eight, forgive those who've wronged you. Number eight, forgive those who have wronged you. If we want chains broken in our relationships, start forgiving them and let go of your anger. But listen up, forgiveness does not mean trust. Forgiveness is commanded, but trust is earned. Forgiveness is commanded, but trust is earned. There are people that are toxic. There are people that will use your love and your affection to abuse you. They will accomplish their means through you by abusing your compassion. And you got to understand that you got to have discernment and wisdom on that. So there are people that you've forgiven, but you can't maybe currently have a relationship with, except in a maybe perfunctory surface way, because there's a trust issue. So don't don't associate the two, that forgiveness and trust mean the same thing. Many of us struggle with anger because we're still carrying unresolved anger in our hearts due to past injustice in which we've never forgiven people or person a father, a mother, or maybe even a situation. The Lord's Prayer we read, and forgive us our debts as 
we forgive our debtors. So there is, this, there is this symbiotic relationship between us extending forgiveness and God being able to give us forgiveness. And some of you are truly carrying a heavy burden of unforgiveness in your heart. You don't even know where it's from. You're not even sure where it is. And you might need counsel. You might need to get some counseling and stuff. Because the reality is some of us are kind of like I've used that illustration of a truck. Where if you just, you know, if you're, if you're walking in, in forgiven sin, if you're walking in regular confession and you throw a large rock in the back of a pickup truck, you're going to hear it rattling around back there and you know you've got to get that rock out. But if you've got 25 rocks, you've got 50 rocks and now your truck is weighted down and you can't even hear anything because there's so much unconfessed sin. People say, well, how do I get to that, Steve? I think the only way is to say, Lord, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Lord, is there any unforgiveness that I'm carrying? And then have your journal there and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Start writing those down and then start dealing with them one by one. You want to talk about lightness? You want to talk about joy coming in? You want to get up the hill in your truck? I mean, you've got to dump that stuff at some point. And some of us are carrying that, and we don't understand why our lives are so lethargic spiritually. It might be. It might be because of unconfessed sin and unforgiveness in our heart. All right. All right, going to zip through these so we can get the panel up here. Number nine, don't keep score. Number nine, don't keep score. No relationship is a 50-50 proposition. You never get out of it what you think you deserve. Everybody hear that? Let me repeat that. No relationship is a 50-50 proposition. You never get out of it what you think you put into it. You don't. Now, as you grow in maturity, we that walk, I think, in the power of the Spirit do understand that. But I think most of the time there is this sense that we've put in more than they have. And so don't keep score. The key to joyful relationships is not keeping score. But listen... Giving more than you're getting out of it. Just go with an attitude. This is going to be hard. I'm going to give more than what I get out of it. And I think it's key in uh, joyful relationships. Right? Right, Liz? I know that's true with us. Because you get... Go ahead. I was going to say something about even our last one as it relates to this one too. That I think if I'm really honest, everything, everyone that has hurt me... Um, in my life, I've done the same things to others in another season of my life, maybe. And when we remember that, sometimes the Holy Spirit makes me remember that. Like, oh, well, you know, you're mad at this, but didn't you do that? Like two years ago or to this person? And it maybe looked different, but that's why I think that there's forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Because we all... Um, need mercy. I'm going to need mercy tomorrow. So, you know, we have to give mercy to people. Okay. Here, let me give you number 10. Tip number 10 is talk and connect. Talk and connect. All the studies show that 90% of happiness has to do with your general outlook on life. You can learn a lot about your own worldview by paying attention to self-talk. The conversation you have in your head about yourself... And the world around you. And so how we talk to our spouse or how we talk to our boyfriend or girlfriend 
or even our relationships and our friendships has a lot to do with self-talk, how we communicate even to, our, to ourselves. And so let me give you some, some statements from what we've talked about throughout this message. Number one, to begin to say this to yourself, I'm going to work hard at my relationships and they will be joyful and fulfilling. I mean, that statement alone is pretty powerful, right? I'm going to work hard at my relationships and they will be joyful and fulfilling. I am beloved of God and I can experience God's love in my life. I'm beloved of God and I can experience God's love in my life. I am a courageous person and I will live wholeheartedly. I'm a courageous person and I will live wholeheartedly. I will embrace vulnerability and be open to others. I will be thankful to others for all they have done for me. I will confess my sins quickly and forgive others who have hurt me. I will not keep score. Rather, I'll be a servant disciple. Long-term relationships are men and women who have that kind of self-talk and then communicate with each other. Listen, gang, silence is deadly in a relationship. Silence is deadly in a relationship. You've got to talk. You've got to communicate. Both parties need to know what's happening in the other person's heart. We see people all the time emailing and texting heavy stuff. I've gotten it. Not. That's why we have a covenant of harmony at the road. If you've signed the covenant of harmony, which means you're a member of the road, part of the covenant of harmony is you will not text and you will not email conflicts. You'll go face to face and you'll work it out. You'll work it out. Don't be texting and emailing and writing letters um, when you can have the... I'm not talking about somebody who's across the state or somewhere where maybe you have to write a letter. But if they're here in the city, get together. And if you're fearful of that relationship, bring a third person. And I think it's healthy and it's actually biblical. Matthew 18 says if you've tried one-on-one and it's not working out, bring a third person. And I'll tell you, it takes courage to do that because that, when anybody's manipulative and unbiblical in the way they do their communication and stuff, they won't like that. You know why? Because a lot of times they're demonically inspired. And so you want to break the power of demons, bring a third person, a godly person, a neutral person. And they say, well, I, I don't know if I trust that person. Well, then you bring your own. That's what I always say. Then you bring a third person. That'd be super fine with me. But I, but I don't trust that the way this is going to get framed after the conversation is going to be actually what happened. Anybody been in relationships like that? So I wasn't born yesterday, okay? I'm from Georgia. I'm not real smart. But I figured it out. And here's what I figured out. Is that sometimes you need, you need a third person. So I want to have Paul and Phyllis come up. And I want George and Linda to come up. And you can text any questions that you guys have. And I've got some coming in already. You, you hold on. I think, I think you hold on to that one, Liz. And then you guys all have a mic right here. It's already ready for you. So 
I'm gonna, I've done all the talking so far, so I'm going to probably be quiet here. Someone said, would you send me your sermon notes? Um, that's not the kind of questions we're looking for. They're, they're actually online. They're at the road, at the road.org, um, roadcs.org. Either one works. Um, you go in, and when, you, when they post it, John Powell will post it next few days. This message and the sermon notes are always there. Okay, you guys. Y'all ready? All right. I mean, I got to find this one that I had before. Uh, okay, let's, I'll, I'll, I'll look for these while I start with these. Here, I, haven't, I haven't even read this, so here you go. Here's the question. George, Paul, <laughs> Phyllis, Linda. Isn't this great? Okay, how long have you guys been married? 52 years. 52 years. 52 years. Linda, how long y'all been married? As of next Saturday, it will be 39 years. Next Saturday? That's my birthday, February 21st, right? Awesome. That is great. And both couples have led ministries, been involved in counseling and ministering to thousands of people over the years. Um, Phyllis and Linda have led tons of Bible studies. Paul and George have discipled so many leaders all over the city. You're rich being at the road and having such godly men and women here. And uh, so it was no doubt that you guys were going to be on it. So we're not going to say much. This is for you guys. <laughs> so too bad. You got to have to answer these. If the husband has a very good job making a lot of money and purchases expensive things for himself, paid for a house for the family, and does not give the wife anything except mostly low-cost gifts for Christmas and birthdays. <laughs> wow. I'm glad I'm not answering these questions now, man. Is this the correct way to treat the wife, or should she receive the same amount of money herself? Whoa. There you go. Y'all can handle that one. I'm, I'm walking off the stage. <laughs> this kind of goes back to the don't keep score thing that you said in the sermon a little bit. Ooh. Um, you know, George and I heard an older couple when we were first married talking to us, and they were sharing with lots of other people kind of a, a game that they played. Who can outlove the other? I'm ahead. I'm ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and we are always trying to outlove the other. Always. Whether it's, whether it's gifts, it's not bigger and bigger and bigger gifts. Sometimes it's surprises. Sometimes it's coming up with the most perfect gift that they couldn't even think of that they wanted. Um, you know, there's so much better to do by being positive uh, than focusing on negative and feeling deprived and, and those kinds of things. Um, and I, I guess George could address the heart issue. If, if all of this is exactly true as this person has texted in, then George needs to address the guy's heart. <laughs> Again, it goes back to a scripture that uh, Pastor Steve quoted tonight but to love others the way we love ourselves. I'm not loving my wife if I'm spending 90% on me and 10% on her. There's a lot of scripture. Take the time to look at the scriptures that talk about one another. All of them have to do with my relationship with Christ and my relationship with others. I am to prefer others above myself. If you're being selfish, and you've got all the toys, and your wife is going down to Goodwill to find a new pair of shoes, all I can say is shame on you. You need to repent. 
All right. Okay, this is to Paul. And, yeah, you can clap. That's, that's, a, that's a clapper. Um, well, you, you can... Uh, let's see You here. can see... Um, yeah, you want to say something, Paul, on that? Uh, okay. Just to say that um, women civilize men. And you can see that all in the history. When the men came out with the gold rushes and the, you know, making uh, big money and uh, trying to anyhow, uh, the last... They, they were, you know, the first things they put together were taverns and pubs and all kinds of things. And uh, they didn't build schools. They didn't uh, invite women until later that things were falling apart. And so the women started to come out and immediately they started to build churches, schools, hospitals, and they really civilized those men. So you could live and they stopped shooting at each other. And uh, so... All I can just say is that um, that's a very immature uh, father or husband. Uh, he hasn't learned to give his life away and just bless his wife. And that's kind of a thing that uh, is, is, is very surprising. But I think those could be very corrected very quickly. Good. Okay. If can we. I say one thing? One what? Thing, one, uh, we one can't time. spend all of it on one question, okay, you guys, so you're going to have to make it fast. Um, okay. Once, one Christmas, Steve said he had the most awesome gift. You might have read this in The Godwild Marriage. It was a, a Indian sorry for me. And that, was, that was sorry, but that wasn't <laughs> a great gift. I thought, where am I going to wear this to an Indian restaurant? Hey, it's in the book. They've already read that, <laughs> but so I'm you don't need saying, to say anything One thing I, I thought of doing, I was a little bit pouty, and I thought, he can try again. So I said, you can do Christmas again. And he did. And then we were happy. But I was, I was going to be pouting. So I thought, I better just say, and, say it and be honest. I gave her a shotgun. Okay, if we get closer to God, our spouse then accuses us of being self-righteous or thinking I'm better than him. How do I deal with that during an argument? Can I go ahead and start on that one? Um, when Lynn and I were newlyweds, she had known the Lord since she was about five. I did not come to know the Lord until I was almost 19. So she was light years ahead of me. I was unchurched, and I was just biblically dumber than a box of rocks. I mean, honestly, I was. And, I was, and when we got married, there were so many times when I was so mad at her because she was so right all the time, and it just ticked me off. You know, you're talking about transparency. I mean, honestly, it's, it's like, you know, give me one out of ten or something. Um, but I had to learn, and, it, and, and I'm ashamed to say how many years it took me to learn, to value her spirituality, to value her wisdom. This is a woman who hears what the Spirit of God has to say. She understands the scripture. She walks it out. She lives it day by day. For me to be bent out of shape because I've got a wife who actually lives a life of Christ is sheer stupidity on my part. It just is. It took me way too many years to value the gift that she was, to receive her as my chief counsel. I am not... Um, infallible. Pardon? Infallible? Oh, and, well, I'm, that's true. I'm not infallible. That's true. Uh, 
Um, but but uh, I'm, I'm not um, put out by her spirituality. I think I finally exceeded that. <laughs> no, but seriously, for the, for the guys that are challenged by your wives, be thankful. Be thankful that they're not carnal. Be thankful that they love the Lord. Be thankful that they are being faithful to you mentally, faithful to you physically, and just simply mature in God and be what they need on the, on the reverse side. Okay, that's enough on that one. Sorry, guys. If the empty nester husband does not have a job for a long time, is it fair for the empty nester wife? Melody, you keep sending these when I'm reading them, and then it flips the whole thing down. You can, don't do that, because I'm reading it, and then they all go, Pfft. okay? All right, so let me start over. Don't, when I'm reading them, don't do it, okay? So then, that's good. If the empty nester husband does not have a job for a long time, is it fair for the empty nester wife to have to bring home the bacon? Phyllis, you need to answer that because you haven't said anything yet. Is it fair? That's a hard one, but I've watched it happen in, in our own son's life when he didn't have a job. And um, I remember him saying, if one more person tells me I'm overqualified, I don't know what I'm going to do. And his wife, it was, it was difficult, but she was the one who was able to find a job. And so I think there's always so many facets to these kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. We know that um, the ideal is the man is provider. Mm -hmm. and, but sometimes we don't live in an ideal world. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to do everything we can to provide for the family. And, um, and I realize that's not easy. And it wasn't easy for them either. But they were able to work it through. And um, there were some advantages that we look back on now of our son being um, in that position. And um, if anybody wants to know that, I'll tell you about those later. Good. Yeah. As you age... And your appearance changes like weight gain and gray hair. What? <laughs> That's why I picked you guys because you uh, don't have weight gain, but you do have a little gray hair. How do you stay in love and attracted to each other when you don't? <sighs> you did it again. You did it again, Melody. You're just messing me up, honey. Um, Let's see. Okay, as you age and your appearance changes like weight gain and gray hair, how do you stay in love and attracted to each other when you don't look the same anymore? <laughs> Time and gravity, the enemy of marriage. <laughs> um, I tell you what, as much as I love her, my favorite picture of her is um, about 20 years old. <laughs> but... And, and your favorite picture of me, I don't have a clue if you even have one, but um, really, it, it's, it's here. You know, Steve, when he was preaching, he pointed to his head, okay? Love is a decision. It's not an emotion. 
You choose to love, regardless of what time and gravity does. You choose to love, bottom line. And there's so many things that happen in life. You know, we go through different seasons. We had a friend a couple of weeks ago who had a double mastectomy. Yeah. Um, yeah. She was devastated, but she wants to live and be there for her children. You know, things happen on this earth. This is a fallen world. Um, car accidents happen, disease happens. I mean, we, we cry out to God for the best of what he has for us, but we still go through things. And so we just have to choose to keep loving. I choose to honor, I choose to admire the things about my husband that are there. Um, he's still got a lot of hair, praise God. We need to really learn how to love the person who, who they are not what they look like but uh, and that that moves very quickly and even when you're young you start out uh, discovering who this wonderful person is that you married and as you do it just it's just such a wonderful thing so paul tells me he loves all of me that's a lot Okay, you guys, what about someone who's in a dating relationship and they're dating someone who's not a believer, but they feel like they're in love with them, they're attracted to them, they have a natural affinity in so many areas, but spiritually, it's not equal. We would say from the Bible, kind of equally or unequally yoked, but um, what, what do you say to someone? They're, they're in it, it's pretty tight. It's probably headed toward marriage, but one is not a Jesus follower and the other one is. This is so dangerous. You might feel like you're in love, but this is so dangerous. You're going to raise children with this person, and how are you going to do that if you can't agree now? If this person's not on the same page now, how are you going to do that? How are you going to make the life decisions that are ahead of you for the next 50 years or more if you don't agree on this most important thing now? I mean, you've got, if you really care for this person, step back and wait for them to get saved. If you're willing to wait, if you love that much and you're willing to wait, step back and give that time. It is just too important to overlook this, to pass this by. We talk to people all the time who skipped that step, who, who married somebody who wasn't a believer, and they are having so much trouble and so much pain and so much regret and so much strife. Don't set yourself up for this. You could even um, set that up and just say, you know, let's call a time out here. Let's, let's uh, pull back, and uh, we can't go any further because the center of my life is Jesus Christ, and I see all things based on him. He's the reference point, and I picture a marriage of, with a partner that is equally committed to Jesus Christ. My mother used to, uh, she was a godly woman, and when I was in college, uh, and I got very involved in uh, campus ministry, and uh, the uh, uh, she would say to me because there were different people that uh, I had met, had uh, dated, and so she said, "Remember, 
Don't ever marry just a nice Christian, a Christian girl. He says, you can't marry someone who's got fire in their hearts, just like yours. And I found one. And the Lord just uh, uh, really taught that because you, you just have to uh, have that uh, equally yoked and equally committed spiritually. Okay. What do we say? What do we say to couples? Sorry. Yeah. It's an excellent question. Great question. Great question. Thank you. Um, here's where you're right. Praying with another person, especially someone of the opposite sex, it's a very intimate thing. So um, Boundaries in Dating by Cloud and Townsend is an excellent book. In that new relationship, the first thing you want to discuss what are the boundaries the two of us are going to have? Because it's in the dating relationship that you establish trust. Because if you honor her, you, you cherish her, you protect her, then when you get married, she will know that you will honor her, cherish her, and protect her. But if because you're, quote, in love and you take her to bed and you dishonor her, she has no reason to believe that marriage will change any of that. So the first thing you pray about, the first thing you talk about is, what are the boundaries in our relationship? How are we going to maintain Christ as the center of our relationship? And by all means, pray. By all means, study the scriptures. But just make sure that you have appropriate boundaries so you don't get in trouble. Can I add one, one other book that we've recommended to our kids that has helped them wonderfully in the process of, of discovering who God has for them. Because that's such a question. You're not sure if that's the right person. Is this the lifetime one? You know, is this the right choice for what God has ahead in my destiny and all that stuff? Um, we love the book, 101 Questions Before You Get Engaged. It's by H. Norman Wright, and it just gives you lots of things to talk about about where you're going in life and what your past experience was and what you like and what you don't like. and We've seen our kids uh, in dating relationships where they discuss things and they, pretty soon they find out, nope, I can't be with this person because this, because this, because this, because they start really getting to know what makes that person tick. Um, George says that pre-engagement counseling is almost more important than premarital counseling. So take time to talk about a lot of things. I highly recommend that you do that in uh, places where you're either with other folks, you know, group dating, or in public places where you don't set yourself up for problems. I think there's a, a role here that dad can do. Go back to some of the old traditions. Uh, had a real good friend in Chicago. He was, a, he was a superintendent of schools, and we were talking about it, and I had met his, uh, his two children, a boy and a girl, and the girl was um, about 24 years old, finished college, had a job, and uh, so she was dating a guy from church. And it went on and on, over month by month, year by year, 
and it got into two or three years. And by now, she was 27, and he was 28. And so he was saying this. I said to her, well, how, how does Emily, uh, are they married yet? He says, no, this, uh, this guy just, he, he doesn't seem to want to get married, and yet they're as close as can be, and they're a really nice, they're a nice couple. And I said, well, you've got to step in. He says, what do you mean? I said, you have a good relationship with your daughter. And why don't you just ask if to go and see the son? And he, he hangs out at the house every once in a while, and so just talk to him. And so what happened is that uh, he, I said, just go, go to him and say, I'd like to know what's your intention with my daughter. And so are you uh, thinking of getting married? And he says, well, eventually. He said, I'll tell you this. My daughter is looking forward to getting married to someone who's a committed Jay, believer, Jay, but also Jay, wants Jay. to have children. And they, she'd like to have a family. From right back and so what happened is, uh, you, you're, if you're gonna, uh, everybody thinks, you know, if you're not going to get married with her, then yeah, I, I think I'll have to advise her to break this relationship. And so um, that's what happened. And so he, uh, he did, he went to her and uh, to the, uh, the, the boy and they talked about it. And he said, I'd really like to uh, know, know your intention. He says, well, no, I intend to marry her. And he says, well, listen, you know, it's like a, a, uh, a used car man. Uh, you go to a, you, you jump in the car and you drive it around and drive it around, comes back and he says, you know, I haven't driven it enough. I think, um, could I borrow it for a week and, and just drive it around? So he borrows it, and a week goes on and comes back and says, oh, I really like the car, but I think I need a month to draw, uh, drive this car more. And that's what's happening, and it's happening out all over the place. Uh, be involved with the navigators. We're involved with, with uh, students, young students, young early 20-year-olds. And the guys are just not stepping up. Somehow they've lost this. Uh, yeah, and, and so uh, I think dads need to step in and find out, son, what's your intentions with my wife? Or my child? <laughs> that'd, be a, that'd be a big one, huh? So, you know, the, the neat part about it was this guy, when he talked to this um, young man, he was, he was a Christian kid, but wasn't very strong in discipleship. And so I, I said to him, you know what you need to do is invite him to disciple him. And you want to start meeting with him on a regular basis. And I gave him a little uh, series of Bible studies and sent him to him, and he did that. He was spent the next six months discipling this young man, developing a close relationship, and uh, a month later they were married. Amen. And they're still married. <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll run out of time, you guys. There were so many questions, and um, sorry we can't get to all of them. But let's stand. And uh, thanks, you guys, for being up here. That was awesome. And let's bring the worship team. You guys, come on up. We're going we're gonna to go into worship. I know that it's, it's late, but let me encourage you to, to enter into worship and bless the Lord. Good stuff. It's going to take him a little while. You know what I got? Well, we can do one more question here.
Okay, George, you're pretty good at this. Will you grab, grab one more mic? And as, y'all tell me when you're ready. This is a question. As a wife, how do I support my husband as the leader when I'm an extrovert and he is more of an introvert? Um, here's, here's the thing. You have to give your husband permission to lead. I mean, there's a lot of guys who want to lead, but they don't feel as though they actually have permission to do that. And if your husband can do it 60%, you know, you're, you're performing at 100%, but if he can do it at 60%, step back, let him grow, let him mature, affirm him, just give him the opportunity, let him go. Amen. Good word. All right, Father, we just thank you for this time. And God, we just settle our hearts now. And God, we want to just focus in on you. Loving you and letting you love us. So we settle our hearts and we settle our minds on you. So men and women, close your eyes and just Maybe remember that portrait, that painting that went around of Jesus carrying the cross as a servant who loves you. Let him love you tonight.